0: Hi, this is Surya Devi and welcome to A Voice for Love. I'm a world music artist and healer from Vancouver, Canada with over two decades experience serving individuals from all walks of life. We're going to be speaking with leaders and visionaries from around the world in the field of art, music, activism, health, education, spirituality, and more to talk about what it means to be a voice for love. We're going through massive changes on the planet right now, and I believe that what the world needs more than ever are people who are aligned, heart-led, and who can speak from the soul to help usher in even bigger shifts that will elevate us all into a more harmonious existence together. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey
1: everyone, this is Surya. Welcome to A Voice for Love. And I'm so, so, so excited today to welcome my very special guest, Valerie Jerome. Valerie was my grade five and six teacher and she was one of the biggest influences on my entire life. And so I'm so happy to have her here with us today. Welcome Valerie.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's great to be here. Nice to see you again, too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice to see you, too. You look, you, you haven't changed. I, I swear, you're exactly the same. <laughs> um, so can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself for anyone who doesn't know who you are?
2: Well, um Let me see, Uh, what can I say about myself? I had a wonderful teaching career for 34.69 years. I loved teaching and it was important for me to become a teacher because the people who saved me, who kept me whole, or at least tried to keep me whole um, were the teachers, a few of the teachers, sadly not enough of them, but you know, two in elementary school and uh, one in high school uh they, they were enough to you know keep me hopeful and it made me realize how much influence teachers can have on the lives of their students you know if they've got one person who makes them feel adequate or capable you know for a year it helps a lot so um prior to becoming a teacher of course i was a uh resident i was born in winnipeg um we came to vancouver in 19 north vancouver actually in 1951 so i grew up on the north shore and our schooling experience for the most part was extremely traumatic Um, especially our first days at school in north vancouver and um fortunately all the racism that was pounding down on us abated considerably when both my older brother and i got involved in athletics and uh, i at 15 and he at uh, 18 became canada's champions in sprinting i won the senior women's 160 the long jump etc and uh, Harry won the senior men's 100 and 200 and he went on to set seven world records and he competed in three Olympics and two Commonwealth Games and two Pan Am's me I did one Olympics uh, at 16 and uh, Pan American Games and a Commonwealth Games and Somehow that managed to whitewash us a little bit, which is one of the reasons I was uh, distraught with a story that actually, you were in my class at this time, a new reader came into the school system called Under Canadian Skies," and it was the story of a little girl who was from a reserve in Saskatchewan and went to her first day of school in the big city in Saskatchewan and the kids tormented and teased her and it went on and on and on. And one day this one particular boy said to her, oh, and your shoes are so ugly. And she said, these aren't ugly, these are moccasins. My grandfather made them for me. And uh, and he said, well, they can't be that good. And she said, well, I bet they'd beat you in a race. And of course she races him and she wins. And then everybody loves her. And I hated the story because it meant that she wasn't of value or worthwhile or considered a good person until she had some level of excellence. And in that case, it was running just like for my brother and me. And I, it made me think of my older sister who didn't run, wasn't interested, or my younger brother who was mentally handicapped. I felt they were just as worthy of respect and dignity by the kids in the school without having to run to you know, sort of uh, prove that they were able or whatever. And uh, so anyway, we ended up having a discussion, I'm sure you don't remember at all, (laughs) but uh, about the fact that should people have to do these miraculous things in order to gain dignity from their cohorts, their classmates, their workmates, whatever.
1: Yeah. So... I don't remember that exactly, but, the, but I, I, I do. There is one incident actually that I do remember that stands out. And in doing my own kind of starting to do my own active anti-racism work, it's this one memory that sticks out. And it was a really pivotal moment in my life now that I look back on it. And there was somebody in our class who was being silly and calling one of the first nation's boys a name. I don't know if you remember this, but it was just, I think she was being silly, but um you, and I remember you asked us who else called this name. And I actually didn't. I just put up my hand and I said that I did because I wanted to fit in with everybody else. Yeah and you hit the roof i don't know if you remember this but you were so angry and you reprimanded all of us you brought in the parents and you said nobody better ever call anyone this boy a name again nobody better ever speak a word about any first nations person again and like you let us have it and i remember now that i've like looked back on it that was like a pivotal moment in my life where i understood that um it is never okay to express hatred towards anyone for any reason, not even joke about it, you know, in the wrong circumstances. So that was a very um, traumatizing moment for me, especially because I remember, well, I didn't even, the funny thing was I didn't even call him that name. I just said that I did because I thought that, you know, like when you're a kid and you go along with what everyone else is doing. So I don't know if you remember that moment or not, but what what you just spoke about too with that, like, That is so valid, and thank you so much for saying that, because it is so true. We put people in our society on a pedestal when they achieve something, you know, and then they get different treatment, but we should treat everyone the same no matter what. Mm -hmm. I
2: don't think you should have to do some miraculous thing to be deserving of dignity and respect, and I think... um, that's, and because it echoed so profoundly within my own life, um, you know, that, uh, you know, my dad, when Harry became a a world record holder, my dad was a porter on the trains, which was all black people, black men were allowed to do in this country. Um, uh, my dad was suddenly no longer called boy, bring me my bag. My dad was suddenly Mr. Jerome, you know, and uh, yes, it, it it sort of, you know, moved us up a notch, but it, Why should somebody have to set a world record in order to get that kind of respect from other people? But, you know, when you talk about things in the classroom, the time I remember perhaps people not quite understanding what I was doing was one boy in our class, we were outside playing baseball, and um, somebody got, walked to first base, and then I don't know how they got to second. They eventually got home, but they had never really hit the ball. And so somebody in the class said, well, that was a Chinese home run. And I said, a Chinese home run, what does that mean? Does that mean that was a good home run or was that a put down of saying, you know, that that's the best a Chinese person could do, which was to just, you know, get walked and then you'd make a home run. And um, I didn't feel the class sort of got my message. I I was astounded that, you know, that it was... It was not a compliment to say that that was, they were basically putting it down and therefore you're putting down Chinese people. So I know I sort of probably wasn't, you know, that relaxed and calm about that explanation, but I tried to sort of tell them what they were, tell the students what they were doing. And they all, all of you guys looked at me as though I were a little bit funny, but nobody called that a Chinese home run anymore. And um, I think so much of it, and the other thing was, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Good God, I was sick to death of that. I heard that all the way through my schooling as though, you know, it's the only way to sort anything out was this eeny, meeny miny, moe, catch a nigger by the toe. I, it used to just drive me crazy. Oh, so
1: I, I remember the Chinese home run. That was a, that's so funny. I was smiling for a moment because I, I remember that. that. was Her name was Ada. I remember that. You well, know, the, the person
2: said it was a boy.
1: Okay, but that it had something to do with there was a Chinese girl in our class whose name was Ada, and I think well, that's we where... We
2: never had a girl named Ada in the class. Let me tell okay. you, I know the names of my kids. But anyway, <laughs> it, it was a boy, and he was a very nice boy. And as a matter of fact, even though his mother ended up having to become involved in this conversation, the mother still wanted me to have the twin brothers the next year, um, which I didn't hang around for. I left the school at the end of that year. But, um, you know, I, I think people thought maybe I was a little strong on some of that but i didn't it was it's so inured the sense of being so unaware is so pervasive people are really insulted if you tell them that they're privileged they have no idea how privileged they are you know but you know the whole business of of Not wanting to be like the others, I have to tell you a really profound experience that happened to me. My first day of school in North Vancouver, I was going into grade two, and my younger brother was gonna be going into grade one, and as I said, he was mentally handicapped. My older brother, Harry, was going into grade five, and Carolyn was going into grade four. we went to school that first day after Labor Day, September of 1951, and we didn't even get across the road. Our school, our home was across. There were hundreds of children with rocks, and they pelted us. There had been a petition to stop us from moving into the neighborhood, and it was horrific. I mean, the the blood that was drawn on the back of my head and my back and the back of my legs, as we ran across and pulling poor little Barton with us. Um, And we stayed in our backyard. There had been teachers out on the playground and there was no involvement of them. So we stayed at home in our own yard. And that was a Tuesday when that happened until the Thursday, when my dad came home from his train trip and he took us back across the school grounds. And I mean, I, 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 relive this. I've been reliving it my whole life. And we stood on the school grounds, outside the school doors, surrounded by this hateful mob calling us everything you can imagine. And my dad went into the building to talk to Mr. Bowman, the principal. And all these kids were, you know, kicking up dirt and stones. And, you know, the language was unbelievable. And one little girl, grade two, Coke bottle thick glasses, red hair, a million freckles on her face, stepped away from the group and came and stood with the four of us. Every time I do a a school talk on racism and talk about my first, I tell the kids, dare to be an Annabelle. That girl was only seven years old. She had far more jam and courage than many of the adults I have met in my life who will not stand up with you in those kinds of situations. Needless to say, this woman remained a lifelong friend. I I just, I think that kind of courage to not want to necessarily please the others, you know, that kind of courage is what we need a whole lot. We need more Annabelles in this world, you know. It, um, it's hard to find. It's really hard to find. I've been in staff meetings on school at schools where, you know, the principal has said, well, I don't care if so-and-so is being called nigger. You know, she probably deserved it. She probably kicked somebody in the nuts. That's a direct quote from a principal in a staff meeting in this city. And the rest of my staff stayed silent. So I, had a, a, I organized an anti-racism workshop for a week after that because I was shocked that my fellow... Staff members were so unwilling to stand. Anyway, so we hosted this. I brought in the most blonde, blue eyed, Swedish looking woman to run this workshop, somebody totally non threatening, but a wonderful anti racism um, advocate. And no sooner had the meeting started than the principal and a third of the staff got up and walked out and said, We don't believe in all this political correctness, you know. So Our our biggest problem, it's sometimes the silent majority, you know, the people who say nothing or are afraid to stand, you know. And uh, it's it's something that I think we need to concern ourselves with. It's like that silent majority got busy and almost reelected Donald Trump, 47% of the population, so yeah. I
1: know, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I don't remember that Annabelle story, but that was like... No, I, I probably
2: didn't tell you about it, but um, it's it's on one of the, um, I think I told you about the Vancouver Historical Society, Valerie Jerome uh, talk that I do, and uh, you'll find it in there.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just so unbelievable to me. I just, I find so much of this hard to fathom. I mean, I was very fortunate both to have you as a teacher. And also, I don't know if you remember this, but um, my dad's job growing up was he worked in international development. So we had people from all over the world coming in our house. And I remember going to his office and like little diagrams there, like the red stick figure, the black one, the yellow one, the white one, and, and like him and everybody always teaching us, no matter what everybody looks like, everyone's equal. Everybody deserves the same treatment. Like we're all human beings. So that was really my dominant programming so um I've been lucky in doing my own anti-racism work I suppose and that I don't maybe have as much to undo as other people do because I was never just taught I was never taught that and then also having you as my teacher and and being such a big influence in my life and I was actually giggling when you were talking because I remember how you used to um remember when you um wiped off the chalkboard you would do like a little dance and you would like always bounce up and down and do you remember that?
2: I don't remember that at all
1: you Yeah. Know. Yeah, listening to you talk, I'm having all these memories come back, but I mean, I think it was, gosh, what a blessing that you were able to, to come and be at the school that we went in, that we were at, because as you mentioned, you know, it's a lot of very sort of privileged kids, and then also one-third Indigenous Mm -hmm. as well, and I I remember the, the difference, you know, like there was, there was such a difference. Oh, it was dramatic, it was really really dramatic, they, um,
2: It it, it was, it was really hard to stomach and, uh, you know, it, um, what really caused me to leave the school actually was the last year that I was there, there was going to be, we None of the parents in the community, nor the teachers, nobody likes split classes. So in order to um, avoid having split classes throughout the school to make the class size even, that year it was decided that if we just took three kids out of the grade seven class and put them into my grade six class, that um, those three, I would be called theoretically a six seven split but then there wouldn't have to be split classes by just making this and of course without any discussion as to who these three people might be it was just automatic that they were three very vulnerable kids who wouldn't have parents coming to um, advocate on their behalf and of course it was it was first nations and it was the same sort of thing of well when the when the Europeans came here, well, you just move these people out of the way, the First Nations people, and put them somewhere else. They're, they're in the way. And it, it's the same thing that happened that year. Well, we're going to take these three people because there's nobody to advocate for them. They're First Nations, and we'll move them into your trust. Now, I love these kids, and they loved me. But I heard a lot of crying, and we had a lot of talks after school with those three kids because they could see what had happened to them. But they were just, well, move them over here. It's the same old thing of put you on the reservation. Not that my class was like the reservation, but I'm just saying, no, um, there were no other determining factors. It was the way it was done that got to me. It wasn't that I didn't want these kids and that I, you know, I was very happy that they were with me as anybody. But I just felt this whole... Patriarchal system of just doing what you want to do for these people because they're not going to fight it, you know, or they're unable to fight it. So it, it really, um, I stopped running with the principal after school after that happened at the beginning of the year. And a lot of things were hard. I mean, the f- began to sort of just reverberate the whole. Um, play bridges you know with this well there was nobody here you know this kind of mentality and the first year that i was at the school um cabbage patch dolls were very popular Mm. and uh one girl in our class from the reserve who would probably never get to own a cabbage patch doll she stole one from a little girl who had multiple cabbage patch dolls in her cubby box in the cloakroom So when it was found out, this particular girl, Celestine, had stolen this doll. She was expelled from our school. She was sent to U Hill Elementary School, which is a really heavily academic school with no indigenous population at all. And this girl, who needed all the love and support she could get, was sent off to this school and would have no other kids... Because she stole a Cabbage Patch doll. I personally didn't feel that if somebody who was not First Nations had stolen the doll, there might have been a more compassionate outcome. So all of this really ate away at me. And as much as I love the rest of the school population and the First Nations kids, I I really found it very hard and I... I, I really knew my time was up. You know, I, I to witness what is going on and to be ineffective in being able to persuade people of any other decision-making process other than the fact: well, if they're muscled, we can move them. You know, I, I found it uh, soul destroying. I ended up taking the whole year off. I didn't just leave the school. I I was I was done.
1: Wow, I, I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, when I speak to people who have been, I mean, you've been, you know, you've been on this planet since whatever, you know, whenever you're... 1944. 1944. (laughs) So whenever I speak to people who are like the older generations who have been doing this work, I can't imagine how how many more, like how frustrating it's been for you. Because I know for me, the more active that I get in kind of, you know, calling people out and like taking more action and stuff, I find it absolutely exhausting. And now I understand why so many people say that this this work is so exhausting because it is. It's like you're speaking to a wall sometimes, you know, people still don't want to Sometimes,
2: all the time. If I were to tell you the number of racial incidents I face, even as an old woman who's nearly 77, Every week in my life, there's something, you know, um, I mean, I've sat on buses in Vancouver where, you know, loudmouth men have sat at the front of the bus and called out loud, oh, look at that nigger bitch, I bet she's a good leg. And nobody on the bus does anything. I've been in stores where I've been told I should go to the budget department, you know, because I'm looking at clothes that are maybe a bit too expensive for me. Or a waitress who who came over, I have this absolutely gorgeous friend, she's black, she was born in America, she's become a Canadian, she's renowned, and we're sitting in a restaurant and this waitress comes over and she I guess she thought we were handicapped, two black women in a restaurant. Well, I'll tell you what this means, if you order this, it's, it's already explained there, it tells you what's in every recipe on this menu. Hello? So, you know, even though that woman in her mind thought she was being, but it was it was very patronizing. I've, I've been denied entry into restaurants in Vancouver. On my honeymoon, my husband and I arrived at the Banff Springs Hotel. This reservation had been made two months before. And they took one look at me and said, we're overbooked have to send you to the hotel your motel actually way down the road this you know I mean it's on and on I had to get my my ex-husband to go and rent an apartment for my dad my dad and I had gone up and down Gramble Street West 12th 13th 14th 15th all the for rent signs remain there after you've been there and they're telling oh we just rented it even Harry, my brother, who'd set a world record on August 25th of 1962, he was the front pages of the Vancouver Sun with his nine two hundred yard record set at Empire Stadium, and he had. We had to get a friend to go and rent an apartment for Harry and his wife. You know, it's ongoing. There are small slights and big slights that wear you down. I, I had an uh, an event I called it an event not long ago in my own building where I live. I was so offended. Now when I see that woman, you know, in the hallways or anywhere, I just flinch because I feel I'm being screwed over, treated badly every time I see her because of what she did. And um, it it wears. It's a long time to be putting up with this kind of BS, you know? And you watch, I have, a man came to me last year, 2020, and said his daughter, who att- she's been in grade one, attending a school very close to where I live, his daughter was being called nigger in grade one. So he went to the principal and said, this is happening. And you know what the principal said in 2020, Vancouver? Well, we didn't have any racism at this school until
1: you came. Oh, my God. I, I, just,
2: I mean, I just felt so bad for this man because obviously his daughter was the only person of color in the school, and um, she didn't have a brother or sister. Her, her little sister was still in play school, which is how I got to know the family. Um, you know, she was, she was facing that alone every day. And I don't know that they had any Annabelles at the school, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's it's wearing. I mean, I just felt so bad for this man, you know. And I, I didn't know what I said. Go to the board. Go to the school board. But the school board at times can be an accomplice too. And I have many stories of, you know, things. Not, it's like the principal who said, you know, well, if... So-and-so is being called a nigger, you know, she must have deserved it. School board knew what was going on at that school and nothing ever happened. So I wish I could be as hopeful as people keep. Oh, we've turned a corner (gasps) since George Floyd died. My heavens, the world has changed. Everybody's changed. I'm not there. I'm not on that page yet.
1: You're not the only one. I've talked about this a few times with people both in conversation and on the podcast. You know, there's people who are like, oh, we ended racism. You know, they think that because some people showed some interest last year for a bit. Like one
2: one thousandth of the population of the city, you know, showed up, you know, the other, you know, you don't imagine how many people stayed at home. You know, so so when they show up for a rally, you you know, unless you've got a million people there, I don't think you've got uh, the majority of the or half even of the population. So, so, why
1: do you think? Why do you think? I mean, again, I'm like a bit of an anomaly for so many reasons. And like, I get this and I have for a long time, but why do you think it's so difficult for people to understand this or people with privilege to understand the struggle of people like other people who who are really in the struggle?
2: First of all, I'll start with the fact that there used to be slavery and, you know, slavery was carried out by good Christian people. They did not see themselves as bad. They saw black people as less than. They were, cargo that was itemized on ships. They they were belongings. And then I'll tell you the story of our country. We did have, at the time of confederation, 60,000 black people living in this country. And they came either, you know, because when the Americans finished their war of independence, the British had given freedom to any black people who fought with the British in the US. And so they came to Canada. Canada had slavery as well. In the 1700s, we've got lots and lots of documentations of, of slave sales in, in what is now Quebec and Ontario. Um, but in 1909, our prime minister, Sir Wilfrid Laurier passed a law that immigration into Canada was limited to blacks 100 per year. So between 1909 and 1960, the number of blacks in this country went from 60,000 to 18,000. And the men who came into the country were channeled into portering on the railways. So for so many white people in this country, they've hardly known a black person because black Immigration was really limited, really limited. In the 1950s, when we got the CFL, Canadian Football League, we started bringing in a few few black players. And in 1956, um, UBC actually brought in some Caribbean students who were black. But for the most part, you know, we were out of the way. It's like, as I grew up, I didn't see the First Nations people who lived on the North Shore They were kept in the residential school that was on the reserve in North Vancouver. Um, They were not part of the larger community. And for black people, you know, um, there were fewer and fewer of us. And we mainly lived in cities that had railway, you know, terminuses like Winnipeg, Toronto, Vancouver, and Vancouver's black population was very small. We knew every black family that was here because their fathers were in fact railway par- porters. And the Canadian National Railway would have this big Christmas party and we'd go and it would be just for the porters' kids. You know, it wasn't mixing up, you know, the conductors and the trainmen and, you know, the rest of the people who worked for the CN. And we would see the Crump family and the Ramsey family and the Risbys and the Collins And other than that, then we'd go back to, you know, North Van Collins for the family, they went to Burnaby. Um, So people, they think they're good Christian people, but their ancestors were involved in slavery. There were very few of us here and we were distant. The school system is set up to inculcate children in the values of a country. That's what a school system does. And so our books were full of white people, and the only black people and First Nations people in the books were half-dressed people who were somewhere in Africa or they were primitive-looking, in quotes, primitive, uh, indigenous people. So the education system reinforces the existence of white Canada, which is what Mr. Um Laurier uh, wanted our country to be. And nobody bothered revoking that law until John Diefenbaker, a conservative, in 1960 brought in our Canadian Bill of Rights. So the school system is made to uh, reinforce all these values. You know, the only time black people were mentioned in my schooling, I mean, I never had a black teacher or an asian teacher i it was it was white and the only time that black people were actually mentioned besides being these images of you know people with spears and loincloths in africa um, was in the music program where we had songs by good old stephen foster of happy darkies on the plantations longing for the cotton fields you know that's what those songs were all about those songs were still being pounded out on the piano in your school when you were there. I was right across the hall from that music room. And I finally said to Mr. McKay that he needs, our principal, he needed to go and stop that because I was deeply offended. I had to sing those songs throughout my schooling. With the Bill of Rights, allegedly our school system should have been building toward a more equitable society because that's what the Bill of Rights and the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights that came out in 1948 was all about about that we all deserved dignity. And white people didn't learn how to dish that dignity and respect out to others because they saw us as either... I mean, in the media, the only people, on black people on television, were these goofs called Amos and Andy who rolled their eyes and eyes are just, I'm just the biggest fool you ever saw. And another guy who was servant of a famous comedian called Jack Benny and he would roll his eyes and be just as dumb as could be and that's what white people grew up with there was no there were no black actors there was certainly not a black person in any ad and that's one of the things i have to comment on since George Floyd was murdered on our television screens there are so many black people in ads now. It's absolutely wonderful. It's, it's amazing. It's, I, I've never seen anything like it. So, you know, how could white people have lived for so long like that? The school system supported it. The media certainly supported it. I several times went to the Vancouver Sun newspaper and complained about the use of the word nigger. Um, you know, Eve Johnson, their food writer, writing about nigger food. You know, um, I went to see Stuart He didn't see anything wrong with that. Publishing the song that was being sung by the Rhodesian army in Rhodesia, um, to the tune of a Terry, Terry Jacks song. You know, we have joy, we have fun shooting niggers in the sun. That was printed in the Vancouver Sun. And before the 1988 Olympics, they ran a column about all these black people who would be on the start line for the final of the men's 100 meters, you know. All these blacks that were owned by France and United States and, you know, and our Canadian black. And, you know, I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's pervasive. So people, white people there, everybody's busy earning a living looking after their own family. They're not interested in black people whom they maybe never see or rarely see or expect them to carry their bags on the train. Um, yeah. And it goes on and on and on. So You know, there are little flashes of hope, but I'm not eternally hopeful.
1: Mm, yeah, there's definitely little flashes of hope, but um, when you're when, as you've been talking, I was just thinking at like one of the one of the protests this year, they were um, like Black Vancouver was giving out these shirts like "Love Black People Like You Love Black Culture" because that's another thing too. Now is mm-hmm. like you know there's so many people and they love rap music or their favorite artist is black or you know there's so much goodness that has come to us through the black community through you know entertainment and well sports and everything, and yet people don't seem to be able to s- connect those two things. Well, like that's what I was
2: saying about the little girl in the in the story of, you know, um, having to run the race. Yes, she became acceptable because she ran a race and did well. In the meantime, if there were probably any other black children at the school, which the story didn't tell us about, um, their, their lives probably didn't change too much. You know, it's... Um, but even those, even those black players who were famous, when you think of, you know, the guy who started the kneel, you know, at the, during the national anthem, you know, um, they he, he didn't really, he was a great football player, but he didn't gain any whole, a whole lot of respect. He's good for one thing, and that's, you know, take that ball and get it through the goalposts. It's not... Uh, it doesn't mean you're necessarily a better person. I remember Harry Belafonte. You probably heard me mention him occasionally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my favorite actor. And, and actually, you were in my class when I had got to meet him. And I went to school the next day. And I said, oh, you know, I can't wash my hands now for the rest of my life. I got to meet Harry Belafonte this day. But even he, as famous as he was all around the world, when he stepped into the southern United States, he knew one thing. You're just another nigger. And that's what they'd say to him they were just as likely to blow his head off as he was trying to take money down to SNCC and the other organizations were that were funding the sit-ins and funding the voter registration um you know yeah you can stand up and sing but we don't want you really to have any other additional rights but you can sing for us or tap dance
1: you know
2: or run a world record, but don't rent here. Don't try and rent in this building.
1: Yeah, it's been really disappointing for me because my, you know, my world and my community is very much sort of the spiritual community because I've been, you know, in the healing arts for so long. And I was... um, you know, I'm not sort of shocked by general racism. I know that it exists and most people are completely asleep and out to lunch on this topic, but I was shocked by the spiritual community and a lot of their reactions to what happened last year. And there's a lot of sort of spiritual gaslighting and dismissive and like, oh, we're all one. We don't need to talk about racism. I'm like, no, 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 no. We cannot get to all one until we look at what's going on. But Until see- we face it. That's what I just said to you. Nothing can be changed until
2: we face And that's that's a big problem for most of society. People can maybe see what other people are doing wrong, but they don't see perhaps maybe some of what they're doing is also rather egregious,
1: you know. Well, I think it makes people uncomfortable and people just don't feel uncomfortable with that kind of discomfort. So they're like, Oh, I don't need to look at this. Like this doesn't affect me. Like peace out. I'll see you later. And well, while they're
2: was- afraid, they're afraid, they're afraid to see that perhaps, you know, the error of their ways occasionally it's very threatening and everybody works hard to try and feel whole and together and whatever. And, um, yeah, it, it takes a pretty strong person, I think, to be able to say, okay, now, how did I behave in that situation? I have to tell you, I um, I did this talk for Probus, which I'm going to send to you, um, and I guess this man or his daughter heard about it. And so I got this email the day before yesterday from this woman who said her father had been in my grade two class and had not realized what had gone on. I mean, there we were stoned off the school ground, staying away, you know, for two days in the backyard. Our mother had no confidence to, or belief in us to take us back to school and think that we were worthy of an education. And this man was absolutely shocked and blown away. And I'm sure he's a good person, but you know, as a grade two boy, maybe he was, and he lived quite away from the school. So maybe he hadn't even got there that morning. But the notion that people are shocked always tells me they aren't paying attention much of the time or they're, and everybody's wrapped up in their own world. You know, they, they, they've got their kids to raise. They've got, you know, so they're not really looking around, but I think sometimes it's pretty glaring and it's, it's shocking that we choose to to look the other way or to not not get involved there you go don't get involved yeah
1: yeah it's this came up on another talk that i had recently i was saying like you know all of these events that have happened and really come to light in the last year, especially in America, there's been so many mostly white people saying, This is shocking. This is shocking. And, you know, well, my, I know. hello. <laughs> yeah, hello. Like, yeah, this is actually, a, you know, in some ways it's sort of milder than it's been in, in other ways, even though it's absolutely oh. terrible, especially in America. But I had a lot of rude awakenings this, you know, in the past few years about Canada because I was sort of under this, you know, head. And in many ways, you know, Canada is a wonderful multicultural community. I've always had the good fortune to you know but you know I have a thing about multicultural
2: I am tired I want to be seen as a Canadian that's one good thing about making an international team you get a sweatsuit and it doesn't say black Canadian or Chinese Canadian you're a full Canadian the rest of the time you're marginalized and I think to some degree people say well I'm not a black Canadian I hang out with white Canadians And no white Canadians called a white Canadian and nineteen ninety four Neil Basundat wrote a book, and he said, You know I, my whole life living in this country I've been called a Trinidadian Canadian. I want my children to not be a hyphenated canadian i want to be I want them to be Canadians and you know one of the one of the sad things about that is in, in our country, as a Caucasian person approaches you, they look at you and they can see only one thing, and that's your color, and so they say to you. Where are you from? I bet nobody comes up to you and says, "Where are you from?" I bet you don't get that at all. But every person of color gets it all the time. Where are you from? Well, why should? I, why do you think I'm from Canada? Is allegedly full of made up of white people, brown people, black people, red people, yellow people? Aren't aren't we all Canadians? You know, we just we. You're telling me that I'm not from here. When you say, where you are from? You're saying, well, you're not one of us. That's what you're saying to me. And I'm tired of that. Why are you asking? Nobody asks my friend Alva. Nobody asks my friend. As a matter of fact, at um, at Southland School, where you were, one day, Mrs... A Wilkinson, a dear friend of mine, our wonderful secretary, came into the classroom. And I. she had that New Zealand accent. And I said to the class, were you in Bill Michelle's class? Because mm-hmm. I said to the class, who was the real Canadian here? Mrs. Wilkinson, who had been here. I remember time. this. I remember yeah. this. And everybody, every hand went up. The real Canadian is Mrs. Wilkinson. Why? Because she was white. She still had her New Zealand accent. Uh, that's, this is what people think a Canadian is. It's somebody white. And if you're not white, I have a friend, a white English woman who wasn't even born in this country. She said to a young man from ahouset who was our server in a restaurant, Nanaimo, she said, well, where are you from? Well, let me tell you, the people at a house that have been sitting on those lands for 30,000 years, if anybody's where are you from, it should have been her. But because he was a person of color, he was not one of us, he must be from somewhere else. And that really gets on my nerves. It really does. My grandfather was in World War I. He ran for Canada in the 1912 Olympics. I think we've been here for more than a 100 years, and people say to me, where are you from? I don't even answer them. I walk away. I'm sick to death of it. You're always telling me that I don't belong, that I am from somewhere else. Rosemary Brown was our first black woman elected to the legislature, and when she stood up to speak, about childcare or something or other, a member of the opposition in the house said, go back to where you came from, because she was brown. Now they wouldn't have said, if that were a white person speaking with a point they disagreed with, they wouldn't say to somebody who was white, go back to where you came from. If you're brown, and her last name was Brown, you really don't belong here. Go back to where you came from. You know, if, if, if only one good thing came out of this conversation we we're having on your podcast is if everybody listening would stop asking people, where are you from? It would be a big treat because allegedly, you know, when Laurie Fung won her Olympic gold medal for Canada, the scoreboard didn't say Chinese Canadian. It said Canadian. My friend Faye Wong's parents, great great grandparents, great 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 grandparents, came here to build the railway before British Columbia joined Confederation in 1873. But people don't look at my friend Faye Wong and say she's a Canadian. They look at her and say she's Chinese. Well, how far back do you have to go before you're Canadian? You know, it's, it's, it's wearing. You tell me all the time, I'm not one of you. I'm from somewhere else. Get over it. Canada is lots of colors, but lots of people who were raised in the school system that I went through think to be Canadian is to be white because that's what Mr. Laurier really wanted, our prime minister really wanted for Canada. And that's what a lot of people still want.
1: It's true. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so valid. And I've heard that so much. And I've thought about this a lot myself because so my grandparents were not born in Canada my parents were, and then my, me and my siblings were. So that makes me, I think I always get confused, like second or third generation Canadian. Uh And I have many friends who are not white, whose families have been here for way longer than me. Yet, like you said, when people look at me, I've traveled and been with people that are not white. And when we're in another country, people have a hard time understanding that like, they think they look at me and they're like, oh, you're Canadian because of the, you know, Uh the, the skin thing. So it's, it's it's really and I've heard that a lot. It's very um, it's very frustrating because but it doesn't it
2: doesn't change. You know, even CBC was running an ad. I don't know, maybe six months ago. I heard it on the radio and I nearly stopped the car and started to clap because you know, they were saying, stop asking people where they're from. Canadians come in all colors. And when you consider this continent has been mostly a continent of color for millennia, with the First Nations people and the millions, 25 million slaves that arrived on these shores, um, you know, from 1600 onward. I mean, the bulk of the people were either First Nations or black for a long time. But, you know, we don't see that here. We see it as a white place to live. And these idiots down in the States, Proud Boys or whatever the hell they're called, whoops, pardon my language. You know, these people, um, they think they've got sort of more rights to be here than even indigenous people, hello? Like, what clock are they using?
1: I don't know, but I've seen some of the most bizarre, it's almost hard for me to understand that these people, when I see them, I'm like, are these people for real? Because I can't even imagine, like I saw this video of this one woman crying. She's like, President Trump, please. It's our country. It's our country. And she, it was real. And I was like, what is wrong with these people? And absolutely. Like you said, I mean, I was reading something the other day speaking about like Stop calling BIPOC people minorities, because actually, if you look at the world population, it's a majority. It's not a minority. You know, there are more people when you combine, say, like Black people, Asian people, people from India, etc. The world is full
2: of color. Yes. Even even if you go to Stockholm, which I've spent a lot of time in Stockholm, you know... (laughs) The black population is there because they've taken in so many refugees from not only the former Yugoslavia and not only the Chileans from their nineteen seventy four coup, but from Africa. They they the people in the south of Sweden haven't quite been as enthusiastic, but the people in Stockholm have, and I just sort of think, you know, what's this notion of white like where do they get this sense of we are the dominant culture? And we've inculcated people with that with with education.
1: Well, it's white supremacy, right? Our entire, every system on our planet is steeped in this false White supremacy. Right. So until we until we completely almost dismantle all of it and start something new, then I, I don't know what because people don't even realize that. What even when you start talking about white supremacy, especially white people, they just get all like. Witty. Well, they
2: don't like the word supremacy, and I do think that's a little bit threatening. I have a wonderful friend, Karina Reed, who does a well, You know, Karina Reed. She does so much good work, and I sometimes want to say, don't use the word supremacy because it terrifies these people. The moment you use that word people think that you're a ku klux Klaner, or or you belong to the proud boys you know you've got to be a little gentle with some of these people and just say you're privileged instead of saying you're a supremacist you know, oh, but
1: even that, that, even that people get so... Oh, I know, know. oh, I
2: know, their nose <laughs> is so out of joint, but they don't have quite the same level of hostility toward the term that they still have, that they have for the word supremacy. I mean, they somehow... But the notion, yeah, they don't really feel that they're privileged at all. They have no idea. They have no idea of where they get seated in a in a restaurant. You know, the place is empty, and they sit me right beside the washroom door. Hello? secret garden up in carisdale i went to the counter and i told him i wasn't going to be coming back you know i uh, it just seemed a little bit too much wow. anyway you know it's it's tiresome it's really tiresome it's um i just i i remain hopeful because you know i look after this beautiful little boy several times a week he's just the light of my life and um I, I just want him to grow up feeling that he's a Canadian. I, I, his parents uh, went through a citizenship ceremony a year ago now, and I said, you beat your mommy and daddy. You were Canadian first, and they're catching up to you. You're a real Canadian. You know, you're here, you were born here. And, uh, but of course he won't be treated that way. He has some color in his skin, you know. He'll be a hyphenated Canadian, and I'd really like him to be a full Canadian. He, Why shouldn't he be?
1: Oh, he should be, and I hope that I... Well, I'm
2: glad you remember that, that lesson with Bill Michelle. That's really good, because Christina Cockle didn't remember it. I was saying, oh, I thought it was the one lesson I actually sort of, you know, tried to sort of hammer oh, something. I, I <laughs>
1: remember a lot. You hammered a lot into my brain. I mean, I'm a vegetarian. Oh, I'm sorry I was hammering.
2: I have <laughs> been doing it but obviously, it worked on you.
1: Well, no, it was, it was necessary because it is, I mean, children don't need as much hammering because they're opening. So hopefully if you can, you know, not hammer... Exactly. But yes. that's the thing, if you if you get the um, information into the children young enough, then they can actually, like me. But it's if-
2: more than information. It isn't information. It's got to be compassion. Yeah. It isn't just information. There are lots of very well-informed, educated people who are more racist than you can imagine. So it's not, it, it's got to do with, um, as a matter of fact, it was Christina Cockle who told me actually that five of the girls in that class and i don't know how many girls were in the whole class but five of them had actually married black people well i nearly fell over
1: ellie ellie's ellie's husband is black she has two beautiful
2: children yeah. oh oh well I would not have known and also there was the girl whose parents were the American consulate Sarah her name might have been
1: oh I haven't seen her in years no no yeah no I didn't and so did I I married we're divorced now but I married a black man and I have a and I have a mixed child now so you definitely had a you definitely had an effect on all of us I didn't even think about that actually
2: well it, it really made me laugh I just i I had no idea you know? <laughs>
1: But again, it's back to this idea, like it's so important. That's why it's, I mean, if anyone who's listening, who's an educator, like please don't underestimate the effect that you can have on a child. Because I mean, we've been mostly talking anti-racism today, but I mean, you are also such a pivotal, um, so many things like um, environmentalism. Do you remember you had us protesting?
2: I was running for the the Green Party in those days. I ran in seven elections for the Green Party. And I must say it it was an interesting journey because many of the parents came out helped me they came out to all candidates meetings and you know a lot of kids delivered flyers and it, it was amazingly supportive I know at some points I was a little bit too much I remember mom one mom was very sad because well, several moms were very sad because their kids were suddenly deciding not to eat meat. And, <laughs> that was uh, me.
1: That was me. I came home. I'm like, I'm not eating meat. And I kind of argued yeah, you with know, them Christine much. all's mother yeah.
2: sent me a letter. And, um, <laughs> and I'm trying to think of the name of this lovely boy, blonde, blonde hair. And the mother came to see me because she was upset because he wasn't going to eat meat. And she was really upset because her daughter, whom I had never talked, had already refused to eat meat at the table. And she was ready to say, and yeah, now you've done it to my son too. And, Anyway, it was all, um, I think they were very earnest parents looking for the best for their children. And um, yeah, no, it was an interesting way. And I thought that was a wonderful class. I remember uh, we invited a man who was a meat inspector for, for Agriculture Canada. And I remember dear little Kathy Monk, who seemed often to be very shy, who stood up and asked the best question of him during that interview. You know, we brought him to the classroom. It was wonderful. It was really great. I'm not, I wasn't really trying to turn everyone into a vegetarian, but I was just trying to say, we're having a big impact on the planet. It's not very positive, you know.
1: Oh, it's yeah. not going to
2: last forever. You know, the planet
1: itself. Well, and do you know what? I actually read an article somewhere like last year, and I wish I could, I wish I had that. You have an incredible memory, by the way. You just remember so many things. But I read this article last year saying that basically if 20 years ago we had learned, and again, this is this is a real theme with humans because it's not just racism. It's everything. It's like we don't learn. It's like with environmentalism. It's racism. like
2: anti-maskers. Yes. I mean, how crazy, how how caring are you, are how caring are you of elderly people if you think you can run around and not have a mask and not imperil your grandparents or the lady next door i mean does it not shock you that people don't care about the larger community
1: there's so many things there and there's a lot of parallels that have been drawn actually between the anti-masking and the and racism as well right because well because a lot of these trump supporters are the anti-maskers Andy, yes, yes. and it's because they don't care and they just think um I mean I, I sometimes creep on some of these people's social media pages and these Americans because like these right-wingers because I just am like they're unfathomable to me I'm like who are these people but they believe things like a lot of them say things like lions not sheep and they believe that in order for them to be a leader that they shouldn't listen to anyone and that they have the right this is this very American thing right it's like I have the right to do whatever I want to do whenever I do it and that is what it means to be an American, you know, which is just so, it's just, it's just crazy. But yeah, there's a lot of parallels to that and, and a lot of people talking about the, the privilege and like how entitled do you have to be? You know, some people can't wear masks for medical reasons. That's totally a different story. You know, they're, they're that, that's very different. But a lot of people just don't, you know, that it's, it's, you know, they just don't want to. So there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of memes going around like if you think it's hard to wear a mask, can you, if you see, if you think it's triggering to see a sign that says masks only, could you imagine what it feels like? to see a sign that says whites only you know they're drawing this parallel between you know the times when you know we've we've shifted a little bit you know but you know again not so much right barely under the surface barely under so so what how how like for anyone who's listening today that's maybe having a, a lot of my listeners luckily are very very aware people they're all you know really having these conversations already in their own life for different reasons um but like how could you, what, what advice or how could you encourage people that want to learn more about what it means to be anti-racist or just to be, you know, just to, to have a better understanding of everything we're talking about here?
2: Well, number one, I think they need to listen to the people. A look at who your group is. Who, who do you spend your time with? if you live in such a bubble that everybody looks like you, then you're not really experiencing. I'm not saying you have to go and pick up somebody off the street and bring them home because they're, you know, of Asian ancestry or, you know, black ancestry. I'm just saying, I I think it's, um, look at how you relate to people. Just, it, it doesn't even have to be a person of color. You need to just be more aware and more interested in other people. We're a very, inwardly focused society, I think. And I think um, whether it's because of the planet or because of COVID or because of somebody's race, I think we all need to look a little bit more broadly at our community and the world we live in and take care of all of it and all of the people. And that's that, that in itself, you know, when people are treated kindly, they can behave better. And, uh, you know, if we treat people kindly, maybe they will behave a little bit better. I don't know, but I hope people will be, try to be a bit more outward looking, you know, not this business of, well, I've, I've never done that before as though it's so abhorrent. They don't want to do it. I think, you know, we need to, stretch ourselves and in more than just enjoying the cuisine of Japan, sushi or the cuisine of, you know, wherever, um, get to know the people too, as well as their cuisine. We we need to broaden ourselves and reach out and not be afraid to be an Annabelle. That's my big theme song, you know? Yeah. It's hard. It's not easy.
1: Well, but it's, it's not easier. This is what I say all the time. It's, because what I observe is like people with privilege they, you know, people talk about white fragility and all this kind of stuff, right? It's like people with privilege are, they don't want to feel uncomfortable. The moment they feel uncomfortable, it's like they just shut off and their privilege allows them to shut off and not deal with it because they can mm-hmm. just walk through their life and be not have to deal with the same kind of thing. So what I always say to people is like, however uncomfortable you feel is only like a fraction of how other people feel every single day. There's people who don't even feel safe to go out of their house. They don't, mm-hmm. I mean, I have a, um, my last guest actually was Don Pemberton, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's um, like Vancouver's Queen of Souls. She's a soul singer. She's a friend of mine. But um, she gave a talk in a church in Caresdale, actually, a few years ago that I went to. And that talk was mind-blowing. There was about 400 people in the church that day, mostly older white people. And she talked about her experience growing up in Vancouver as a Black woman. Mm -hmm. And I think she just blew everybody's mind. And she said that even still to this day, her, I think, in East Van... One of the drugstores that she shops at, she will get followed around by the security guard when she shopping Oh, Listen, I, I still have this experience. You know? yeah. If I haven't bought something in a hurry, they think
2: I'm there to shoplift. And as I said on global television news last week, people think we're either dirty or we're stupid or we're criminal. They, you know, one, one restaurant didn't let me in. They thought I was a hooker. What? Yeah, that we don't let women like you in here. But I want to go back to the business of uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and go to the idea that people who do not want to get COVID are dying to have those minutes of discomfort to get an inoculation. Mm -hmm. People will take on that pain. And I think it's the same thing. Stretch yourself a little bit. Have a little bit of an inoculation. Get to know somebody else. Get used to your own fragility and move on you're prepared to have a little bit of pain in order to avoid COVID, maybe have a little bit of pain by opening up, get vaccinated, you know, in a, in a different context.
1: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. It is, I mean, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine. He got very angry with me because he's, you know, of European and, and his, you know, all humans have been through struggle. I don't think anyone's trying to deny this, but when I was okay. trying to to, to to point out some privilege, he got very upset with me and was like, don't call me privilege. Don't talk about white privilege. But, you know, it's, so it's, I-, I it, just,
2: it. it just reflects how little they know of people of color. Yeah. When they don't understand how much privilege they have, they need to listen to that speaker, Dawn Pemberton. They need to turn on to my- um, Um, YouTube site, you know, Vancouver Historical Society, Valerie and find out what our lives are like ongoing. When you say you're not privileged, you're just so unaware of what other people's lives are like. You know, but yeah. And then I believe
1: the next step after that is then once you understand what your privilege is, you have to use it in whatever way that you can to, you know, one of the first guests that I had on my show was an indigenous healer named Asha Frost. And she's incredible. And she said something to me that really stuck with me, which is like white women listen to other white women. And she's like me more in the healing realm. And there's been a lot of issues again, which I I, I don't find a lot of things shocking. But the, the piece about the spiritual people and the healers being so ignorant was a bit shocking to me because because I would have expected that these people are, you know, they talk about doing healing work, they're talking about higher consciousness, and then there's other things that have just gone completely over their head. And they just mm-hmm. want to bypass all of these uncomfortable issues and go straight to, well, we're all one, so we don't have to talk about racism. No, 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 no. We can't get to we're all one until we unpack all of this other stuff that's happened on the planet, like, and continue to happen. And they're, it's going to keep happening unless people actually have the awakening and understand and can actually do something about it. You know, and so then everybody have has to have the will to do that. Yes. And the will is not necessarily there, you know. Well, because with privilege comes a lot of comfort. I find that the more, I've worked with all oh. kinds of people, I, and I find that the more privileged somebody is, the more likely they are, not always, but the more likely they are to just be completely able to just like tune out and like, well, this doesn't affect me and I have the money well, or it's the It's the same
2: way in which many privileged people don't understand what it's like for poor people who are on welfare and are having to stretch this little bit of money for so many days over their four children and the rent that's always going up um you know privilege really insulates you from so much of the world and not just in terms of race but in terms of people who um, are poor people who have addiction problems you know it's um Compassion. We need big orders. Too bad it wasn't a food that we could, you know, passion fruit. You know, turn it into compassion fruit and have something <laughs> that could, you know, help you sustain a, a more caring um, existence on the planet.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh! You just gave me an idea. I think we need to make a, a compassion cake recipe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah.
1: So let's to end on a positive, a little positive note here. Tell everyone like, so what do you do to keep yourself joyful and happy in the midst of all of this like activism work and just living your life as you continue to do? What, what brings you joy?
2: Bird watching. I'm an absolute. Well, I was probably when I was at your school as well. An absolute, you know, bonkers bird watcher. Um, I enjoy this little fellow. I get to see. Um, he's now five and is in school. Um, I have friends who are. You know, I'm getting old. I have a lot of friends who are unwell and are getting further down that path towards, you know, turning out the lights. And so I try to, you know, keep in touch with them. Um, I love music. I love, I'm very involved in the dance community. I'm just a gaga groupie for Kid Pivot and uh, Radical Art Systems and, um, and uh tiffany and david i never remember the name of their company but anyway i go to a lot of dance performances it's uh, it's it's really and music does it for me and i am learning how to play the piano which is really hard work at my elderly age to you know get my fingers which are stiff onto the right note and to be able to read the note it's it's big work but i love it i love it i'm struggling but i love it
1: Oh, that's amazing! Let me know if you need any help. I I play piano, so I'd be happy to help. Oh, do yeah. you? All
2: right. Well, I'm I'm nearly hopeless, and I I admire my teacher for enduring these agonizing, awful lessons that she has to sit. We now do it on on um, FaceTime or whatever it's called, and I put my phone on one end of the piano so she can see my hands on the keys. And I feel so sorry for her, but she, you know.
1: That's a teacher's job. It's like you. How many times did you sit through agonizing moments of like teaching kids to read or, you know, that was the irony. When you told me that story about that lady at the restaurant with the menu, I was like, how many children did you teach to read or write or all of these things, you know, like, you know? Yeah, well,
2: she really figured we, we must be from another planet because we wouldn't know what any of the names, of the, Oh, the it was shocking. Anyway, it, it's a point of actually laughter between my friend and I who were there. We were very angry and hurt at first, but now we just sort of laugh at the fact that we actually got through it without, you know, turning our plates upside down on the table and, you know, making a mess or something. So
0: Well, that's a big
1: thing. And that's what Dawn and I talked about on our last interview a lot was just laughter, the importance of laughter and how yeah. so many people. People, specifically enslaved, anyone who comes from enslaved, like African ancestry, it is the laughter that has gotten them through. It is the humor and how finding a way to find something funny about is this actually atrocious situation, which mm-hmm. I think we can all know. Oh, no, no, humor great. I, I get up in the morning and my friends view,
2: she sent me a lot of jokes on, <laughs> on email and text and uh, I have a really good laugh before I start my day and it really helps.
1: It really does. Well, uh, Valerie, thank you so much for being here. I have to say thank you. You've been such a huge influence in my life and I'm just so delighted that we were able to connect and and talk and I look forward to connecting more. And where can people, is there anywhere people can find you if they want to find you or anything you, I know you're going to share, I'm going to post this, the interview or both of them that you told me about, I'll share them with everybody and anything else that you'd like to add? Well, they
2: can go through you to get to me and, okay. you,
1: can, you know, um, I'll be
2: the gatekeeper. Forward anything to me, yes, you can be the be the gatekeeper. <laughs> and, um, and I do want to send you this um, interview I did for Probus, which is not, um, it's not on YouTube. And um, you might get some ideas from that as to how we can, you know, continue to connect. And I hope you'll say hello to your family for me i I remember your family really well your mom was a teacher and she was such a gentle soul so yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. she i know she was really excited actually she's that i told you that i told her that we were chatting so (laughs) yeah so yes thank you so much everyone valerie jerome incredible incredible woman um thank you so much for chatting with me today (laughs) my pleasure take care take care you too
0: You've been listening to A Voice for Love. This is Surya Devi. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this series inspires you to discover your own voice for love so you can use it to be a force for good in your life and in the world. You can find me at suryadeviworld.com. I wish you great joy, good health, and the courage to speak up for what you believe in. Peace.